audience, welcome to Staying at Home, episode number four. You might ask yourself why episode four starts before episode number three. I've been recording an episode with Porsche race driver and brand ambassador Timo Bernhard for you guys, but unfortunately the file was broken and we will re-record this episode in this week, so stay tuned for that. And that's the reason why after two comes four. But I'm super happy that one of my dearest friends and yeah, also a very personal inspiration, Prescott Watson has joined us today. And um, yeah, I'm I'm happy that you are available right now because you're a busy guy. Why you're so busy and what you're doing, we are uh, gonna spend the next hour talking about that. But uh, if I'm not wrong, Prescott, you are staying at home. And uh, where is home right now? Yeah, I'm staying at home, which qualifies me for your your theme of the, the week. Um, home, San Francisco. I'm living with my girlfriend in a very beautiful neighborhood called Haight-Ashbury. And uh, yeah, luckily, luckily, we have access to uh, parks nearby. It's not super dense. It's not Manhattan out here. So don't have to be at home 24-7, but it is very much a staying at home experience these days. Where were you when the situation became closer and closer to you? And what was the moment when you, you know, realized that this is a little bit bigger than just a little cold going around in China? Well, it was interesting. Actually, Ishida and I were both in India at the time. We'd gone from Israel, where I have a lot of colleagues. Uh, we were there for a wedding. Um, in fact, the, the last day I think we were in Israel was when that country uh, started rejecting flights from Korea and Japan, um, which didn't really scare us that badly. I mean, Israel's pretty aggressive about uh, security in many senses of the word. Um, then when we went over to India, we started seeing more and more headlines. This was in, uh, this was in late February. And in fact, we both kind of cut our trip short, she much more so than me. Um, because we started getting concerned that the U.S. actually might close its borders. So we ended up popping back over to the States, um, I think March 1st. And since then, it's been, it's been pretty much uh, you know, sheltering in place. San Francisco and the Bay Area was much more aggressive. And when I say much more aggressive, the funny thing is it's like five days. But uh, a few days before the rest of the country started considering it, they, they issued a shelter-in-place order. And um, who knows what this, the cause of different outcomes is, but it looks like it was pretty effective in, uh, in ensuring that stuff out here is going better than it is, unfortunately, uh, in New York and other parts of the country. You travel a lot, uh, not only for personal reasons, but for your work. What, what do you do for a living? I, we know us now for eight years, but I always wanted to ask you this question. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the one line here is, uh, I'm an early stage investor for work. Right now, I'm with a, a small team. We're called Naive Mobility. Uh, we look at what we call early stage mobility uh, founders. So we're we're meeting people that have either ideas or sometimes they're in the early stages of building a product in what we call the mobility space. And uh, we try helping them along that path by investing money in their companies. Uh, and then because we only look at this one area of mobility, uh, we can get involved either in the product development space, or we can help them with their go-to-market strategy, et cetera. Um, mobility can range from automotive. In fact, a lot of what we look at in Israel is, uh, I guess, to this th theme of a lot of the folks you talk to on the racing side over here, um, stuff that goes into cars, sensors, cybersecurity for cars, um, 
you know, things that actually get baked into the vehicle. Um, but actually out here in the States, we spend a lot of time looking at services, um, business model changes and how people actually access mobility. So it's not always just the car, so to speak, but it's a lot of stuff around um, everything from fuel payments to insurance to micromobility, things of the sort. And uh, a lot of people say, you know, if you're a mobility investor, what's it like now that nobody's moving? And uh, answers, it's a mixed bag, but um, I still think there's a lot of interesting opportunities out here. Uh, yeah, we're actually, we're based between Israel and the US. So I'm, I'm based out here in San Francisco, but the rest of my team, for the most part, is in Tel Aviv. So let's go one step back because before, you know, we go deeper into the daily business and how it works, I want to take a step to the side and yeah, talk about the different types of investing because we heard a lot about the stock market lately and how it's experiencing some, let's say, uh, extraordinary situations at the moment. What type of investment is is exactly what you're what you're doing? Are you um, also consulting the companies with your expertise or are you just handing money to some people that say they come up with the next Tesla and sit on it until it's becoming profitable? So, How does your type, <laughs> yeah, type, no, no. type of investing work? Yeah, actually, good question. <laughs> uh, I'll start with the, the stage because um, you brought up like the stock market. The primary difference between what we focus on and you know the public markets, you know, you look at Dow, you know, when you talk about the Dow or S&P 500 or I guess the DAX 30 for you guys in Germany, uh, the biggest difference is that you know, if you're looking at the public markets, you're looking at typically mature companies um, that are uh, available for anyone to buy. So you can go and buy shares in you know, Facebook or shares in GM or something of the sort, and you can sell them at any time. So it's fairly liquid. Um, you can take a position and then you can get out of the position pretty quickly. Uh, the other thing is that the stock market tends to be um, maybe more reactionary, like uh, prices fluctuate pretty wildly because I mean, there's two, there's two reasons people, two broad reasons people are making bets in the stock market. One is more fundamental. So you ultimately the value of a company is related to its long-term ability to generate free cash flow or profits. And eventually, you know, the long-term steady state of any company you can imagine is, yeah, maybe for 10 or 20 years in its early growth, it's making money, but it's using that money to create new products and it's not really generating any profit or sending its investors money. But, you know, as it gets more and more mature, it starts generating dividends and just, you know, owning the shares will result in you getting payouts of profit every, every quarter or every year or something of the sort. Um, so the fundamental approach you have is you say, do you think this business is going to produce profits? And if so, how many and how what should the business be valued based on those profits? And that's you're pegging your your price to that. But of course, because there's so much psychology that goes into the stock market, um, if you see if you see something rising in value really quickly, irrespective of your true belief of like, if this, if company is valuable or not, kind of like the toilet paper bubble, <laughs> I don't know about you guys in Germany, but we experienced definitely here in the U S my colleagues yeah. in Israel experienced it. Like if you see something going up, you decide, well, I just want to buy this because maybe I can sell it for a higher price completely, you know, without regard to what the core, you know, what your perceived fundamental value is. And so the same thing applies going down. And so there's, there's fundamental and I guess technical or psychological reasons to be trading. That's, I mean, I'm not going to say the the psychological and technical things don't factor into early stage investing. It, they very much do. I mean, you have to 
get comfortable and believe that three or four people working on a product are going to be able to see it through, are going to be able to make the right decisions, you know, get this into the hands of customers. There's a lot of psychology that goes into it, but it's really different. Like the time horizons are much greater. If you are investing in startups, you're going to be, you know, holding those shares for many years. I mean, it's funny, but the the average founder and investor relationship at the seed stage is far beyond the average length of the American marriage for, especially for successful companies, because, you know, most companies unfortunately don't get past the seed or the series A stage and they'll fail. But if a company is going to be successful, you're going to be working, the founders and investors are going to be working together for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. So um, psychology does play a big part of it, but the feedback cycles and your ability to enter or exit position, so to speak, is very different. So you kind of take a little bit longer term uh, approach. And the other thing is that because, you know, people aren't buying and selling these shares constantly, you can kind of sit and really ask yourself, okay, sure, there's a downturn now, or things are really hot now. Put that aside. Is the product they're working on going to be something people want to pay money for? And you have to have kind of a long-term point of view around why this is going to be valuable or not. And hopefully you're view is based on kind of more long-term trends. And so you're not really, you know, getting freaked out or, or changing your opinion too quickly. Obviously, like the, the downturn that's happening now is wiping out lots of businesses because it's just changing the reality. Like those businesses, if you say you were, you know, I don't know how Square is doing, but if you're Square and a lot of your customers are restaurants and suddenly like half of all restaurants are shut down, like there's no, there's no denying the fact that any earlier stage company in that space that sells to restaurants is going to have a really tough time and has to figure out another thing to do. But, um, yeah, yeah, the, the, the light, the, the cycles are longer. And so I think that it's a little bit less crazy. It's very interesting to, you know, think about how building a business works because just because you as the founder of a startup or a company, you like the idea and your, your friends encourage you, oh, just stay in there and it's gonna go great. Investors, they don't run charities. Um, what is a indicator that something might be just like a idea that is, you know, nice to look at, nice to listen to, but probably is not going to survive the first first three years. Yeah, no, no, I think I I think I get your question. The, well, the number one reason that companies don't succeed in the early stage is that number one, and I'll get I'll put an asterisk on it, but is that they're building something that isn't suited to what their customers need or want to buy, um, and so you can be you can be working on you can be doing really good work, but you're just working on the wrong problem. And so I think in the early days, the most important thing is figuring out if what you're spending your time trying to build is something that people eventually are going to want. It sounds so basic, but a lot of times there's just a gap. Like you see a lot of people that are very, um, I see this all the time, especially like take the robotic space. Um, you know, you might be a technologist that as maybe in academia, you're incentivized or you're excited about solving the hardest problem or, or taking the most elegant you know, way of sol- solving a problem. But if your focus is that, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're building a product that solves a customer's need. It just means you're building a really complicated solution, right? So you might spend a lot of money and a lot of time building something and then it's not going to go anywhere, right? So I think that that's a question that we spend a lot of time thinking about, like, is this something that people need? 
And um, how do you get quick feedback? Because sometimes your customers themselves don't even know what they need, right? You, you do have to yeah. kind of imagine at times. But yeah. what are the ways you can kind of quickly test the market and see, like, is this something that people do want? Um, what are, you know, what are other pieces of evidence you can assemble around to make a case for like why this is something that's worthwhile. Yeah, and I think that's the main challenge. Um, as you know, I, I work in financial technologies and I experience this, this every day, what the customer thinks they need and what they actually need. It's such a, such a different thing um, and it's the job of the company to be able to communicate what the solution to, to a certain problem could be, even if they wouldn't, wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, and you're hinting at, a, at the second biggest issue, which is like sometimes, sometimes it's clear what the market needs, but you may have one or two early good customers that are open-minded and are forward-looking and like they'll adopt that, especially if you're in the enterprise space. But then the next set of customers might need to be convinced. And so then you have like a go-to market or a marketing challenge. And then you have a kind of, how do you communicate why this is a better solution than other things? We see this all the time in the automotive market, which is one of the areas we focus on. How do you bridge the gap between you know, a BMW or a Hyundai, like one of these giant companies that has um, longer sort of cycles to identify needs for future product lines that are, you know, model year 2025, uh, when a startup needs to get proof or make sales in 12 months or it's going to die, like how do you bridge the five-year design cycle to the one-year life cycle that startups are on, right? Um, yeah, that, that's, that's the second major yeah. issue, especially in the enterprise space of why companies, even if they build a good product, you know, end up not succeeding. So what, uh, what does the tech world in Silicon Valley think and say about the impact of coronavirus? Because there's a lot of unemployment, there's recession or even economical depression heading towards us. How's the topic spoken where you're at? Interestingly, I feel like the tech world may have been a bit ahead of the curve in the U.S. on looking at this as a big problem. I remember when I was in India in February, I was following a bunch of people uh, in tech circles and seeing like, you know, I, I didn't do a rigorous comparison, but it looked like a lot of the tech companies were starting work from home policies earlier. In part, I'm sure because it's easy for a tech companies to, to do a, a work from home policy, right? Um, and that could have filtered into like why San Francisco seems to be doing a little bit better than a lot of other cities in the US on uh, COVID response and mitigation. But um, not just like regarding the virus, but actually the downturn in some ways, I mean, there's good and bad. Like tech, on the one hand, can be insulated from the downturn. Like you see the headlines on Zoom and Netflix and all these other kind of tech and media companies that are doing fantastically since, you know, the tech industry is shipping all the tools people use for work from home, right? Um, yeah, there, there are a lot yeah. of things that are doing pretty well in the tech industry, um, given the the situation today. Yeah, it's really, really interesting, especially since you mentioned work from home in the in the States from from what I learned, at least in the fields where, where I'm working in. Working from home is such a non-issue. Like the infrastructure was mostly there. In Germany, it's like this new thing, this mysterious, does it even work? Does it make sense and all? Like in, in, in my team, in my business, we, we are working from home, but from, let's say, 1,000 people that work in Germany, maybe 
20, 30, 40 work from home on a regular basis and uh, the rest is working in our, our offices. And seeing this, these technologies like Zoom, WebEx, basically now coming into our work schedules into our workflows, things also have changed tremendously how you prepare for a meeting, how conversations go and all of that. These companies are happy, you know, that they started 10, 15, seven years earlier than today. Do you think if you had a business idea and you, you know, would be ready to found found your startup. Is right now even a good time to do that? Is it a, for investors a good time to invest money? Is it too little, too late for someone that now wants to wants to take the entrepreneurship of themselves to the next level? Yeah, I, I mean, I think before what you just said, I kind of made it seem like a rosy picture talking about Zoom and Netflix and other other companies like that. In general, I, I think it's going to be a bad situation because beyond the virus and the work from home kind of like craze we're going through now, like there's probably or almost surely going to be a huge economic downturn. And I don't think anyone's going to be really that well off from it. Obviously, there's winners in every crisis, but... Um, so I, I don't think it's going to be good for the tech industry and especially for startups, which we can get into in, in a minute. Your question about whether it's good to start a company now. Um, yeah, on, look, on the one hand, through every downturn, there have been a number of great companies started. Like people always point to Airbnb and Uber, you know, around the, the 2008 crisis, right? Um, there's many companies like that that either have been very successful or gone public um, in the last few years that were started or at least started right before and weathered the 2008 downturn. Um, so I, I don't think it's impossible. I mean, I, th I think if you, if you have the right proof points around your product and you know, you, you're, you're doing the right things, um, it's possible to get funding. It's possible to, to find customers, et cetera. I'm not going to lie though. It's certainly going to be much harder. Um, and this gets into like what I was saying earlier about it, it's startup funding is going to be a challenge. People who are in the early stages, seed series A, you're not typically raising money because you're going to be a profitable company, you know, six months after you raise money. Um, chances are when you go to investors, you and the investors understand like you're raising money now because you need to get to certain milestones to show either more proof points that this is the right product to build or that the product you're building is actually going to work or that you have early customer traction. And those milestones are not going to mean your company is sustainable per se. Uh, so it, typically people are investing on a one to one and a half year timeline to get to that next milestone. And if in one to one and a half years, the milestone is more customer dependent, not product dependent, which means it's not just what you have to build, but like you have to get into the hands of customers. If suddenly in the next year, no one's buying anything, um, that milestone is going to be way harder to hit, which means you may have to raise yeah. more money to, to give yourself two years of runway or two and a half years of runway, right? And that, that in my mind seems extreme, although there's lots of like big tech investors that are saying three years of runway minimum, like that, that seems crazy to me. And the reason it seems crazy is because that's a lot of money to raise. And if you're raising it, when you're pretty early, that is pretty dilutive, meaning you're selling a lot of your business. And your goal as a founder should be to 
kind of run a balance between like how much do you keep of the business between yourself and the team and how much you're giving away to investors. One of the reasons people have to raise money multiple times throughout the, the life cycle of their company as they grow is because, you know, investors want something in return for taking a risk. So in the early days, if you were to raise enough money to give you 10 years to go from where you are now all the way to being a successful, profitable company, you'd have to be raising so much money at such a low value that your entire company would, you know, you wouldn't own the company anymore, right? So yeah. it's really, it really adds difficulty to the balancing act that founders have to play when they're trying to figure out how much do I need to hit a milestone? How long will it take to hit that milestone? How much money will it take for me to, to fund my growth throughout that, you know, year or two year period? And then, you know, what percentage of my company do I have to give away to, to, to hit that. It's a, it's a tough balancing act. And it gets harder when the milestones get pushed out, which is more likely to happen when you're in an economic downturn. So I kind of opened this whole thing talking about how tech was ahead of the curve and tech could be insulated from the downturn. But in, in reality, like when you look at the broad tech sector, not just the Zooms and the Netflixes and the, you know, all the different slacks, the telecommunication tools, but lots of companies building products for the quote, real economy, it's not going to be great. Yeah. It's going to be it's going to be really bad. Um, and so, I mean, within our own portfolio, we spend a lot of time working with founders to plan out. Okay, do you need to be making cuts? Um, do you need to be, you know, doing like? I mean, it's really tough conversations. Like, how do you balance salary expectations and uh, still retain um, a motivated team that can get to the milestones you need to get to six months from now or twelve months from now? Like, do you have to assume that that milestone is going to be pushed out to two years? Like, how are we going to do that? How do we change the story when we go back out to market to raise more money? Um, even when the story is not like, oh, we're six months away from a customer contract, but we're a year away from a customer contract, right? That totally changes the way that people yeah. look at the business. So yeah, it's, it's, I think the most important thing though, is that if you have indication that you're working on something that is valuable to a particular industry, um, it's it's never it's never a, a, a terrible time and it's never a great time to start something, especially because it's going to be years before you really have you know a big business. So it might just be a little bit harder now, but I, I think that sometimes the the timing of the the industry and the timing of the product that you want to get out there dictates you just need to get going now. Yeah, you mentioned earlier um, two great examples: Uber and. Um, Airbnb. Is there in general a chance that these businesses are successful the way they are today because they were founded during a recession? Or do you think that was no factor at all? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that the era into which they were born and the environment, the business environment all played a factor. I'm sure there were tons of great people they were able to recruit thanks to the fact that other companies, you know, struggled or went out of business. Um, I don't know the inside story well enough to tell you, to tell you that. Uh, It would be super interesting <laughs> yeah. to see some statistics to that, like, because that might motivate some people and, you know, give uh, also uh, make investors believe more into concepts that are actually great. And maybe the timing is just a little bit uh, in, in, in inconvenient. Um, what is convenient right now to to uh, transition smoothly without noticing into the next topic is uh, food delivery, which, you know, a lot of them started as uh, little startups and uh, in, in uh, Uber Eats is, is one of them um, in the States. 
we have here in Germany Delivery Hero, in the UK it's Deliveroo, which, you know, for, for many of us, um, it started with a casual, convenient thing. And now for some people, it's the main way they, they get their food into their house. What do you think is the reason why they're right now so Yeah, yeah, uh, well, so, it's, it's so going important. gangbusters. Um, well, you know, I said there's always a winner in every crisis. I, I, I think that the current like crisis around the virus is obviously a huge boon for anyone doing delivery. I mean, I think the I, retail in general is is going through crazy changes. Like nobody wants to go in to packed stores. You have to wait in lines outside. Um, yeah. And so food delivery and grocery delivery is really going crazy. Um, I, I think the question is also, though, what's the second crisis? Because everyone's talking about the virus and how this is now spawning what's going to be an economic downturn. Is food delivery a durable consumer spend? And what I mean by that is like, is it a line item that every household is going to just accept that this is, you know, this is what we pay for food? Because in some ways, um, you can think about a lot of things that, you know, in, in a good economic environment, like taking an Uber, for example, uh, might be something more people are considering when things are good, but when you don't have a job, like you're not going to take, take an Uber. It's a pretty expensive product in many ways. Um, yeah. right. And so there's a question around how durable is food delivery as a, as a category of consumer spend Are people going to be, look, the, the, the case for it being somewhat durable is that I don't know about Europe, but in the U S I think it was two years ago, the total dollars spent on eating out or eating, you know, prepared food versus groceries, uh, expenditure, it actually hit a tipping point for the first time ever. I mean, you know, historically, no one, you know, eating out is a, is a relatively contemporary, you know, popular thing. And I think that you could say there's a whole generation of especially American consumers um, that live, you know, frequently in, in cities, the coasts that uh, just don't know how to cook, don't want to start cooking. And maybe even if they're, yeah. they have to tighten their belts, they're going to still pay for food delivery. Um, I could see that being the case, but I could also see that I could see the opposite being the true, being true, where a downturn really results in people tightening belts and saying, no, we're going to buy groceries. We're going to cook. Um, honestly, I, I think either is, is equally likely. Um, and we're, I mean, given that we're in the mobility space, we think a lot about e-commerce fulfillment, a lot about delivery, uh, both for groceries, food, pharma, other things of the sort. Um, it's something that really is top of mind for us. Uh, we've got a few teams that we've backed in the space, um, not actually food delivery networks themselves, but people that are actually providing vehicles and tools for a lot of the courier networks uh, to be uh, more sustainable, more profitable, actually provide, you know, a, a good wage, a wage equivalent, so to speak, to, to the people running for these platforms like Uber Eats and Deliveroo and whatnot. And, um, you know, it's a question, like, it's, it's going crazy right now. Like, there's so many people signing up to do these uh, food delivery uh, gig work, uh, jobs. And, uh, so if you're selling tools to these folks, your business is doing really well. I think there's a big, there's a strong push for making to diversify beyond uh, the food delivery space and just get into delivery in general. Cause even if, for example, food delivery is kind of a luxury good, maybe e-commerce in general, I think, I, I don't think that e-commerce is going away. Like, I don't think that people are going back to in-store purchases, you know, in mass. I think in, um, retail in general, in general, has so many challenges at the moment, which at least to my small knowledge of, of uh, economics uh, weren't there before. 
you know, like um, normal things like the rent is increasing for the shops and it's difficult to find people that are willing to stand uh, sometimes really awful hours long in, in stores that uh, have bad ventilation <laughs> for minimum wage. And uh, then there's this company named Amazon, which, you know, started with books. And then suddenly you can get your groceries, uh, the, the computer I'm recording this on, I, I got it off Amazon and I looked in basically every every uh, website that I could find to, uh, you know, get the machine that I liked and Amazon got the deal. And the next day I, I had, I had a editing computer in front of my door. And th these are experiences that many people appreciate. And um, when I compared this to retail with having go to go to town, looking for parking, dealing with maybe sometimes rightfully so moody salespeople that are, ha have a <laughs> tough time to keep the spirits up uh, for 12 hours in a day. And, um, you know, like I worked in retail before this. That's where I started my, my career. I, I worked at ISP, um, internet service provider, and switched then between the, the creative in industry until I'm now in, in financial technologies. But in retail, it's, you know, people were, and still today are saying, oh, Amazon is bad and it's the enemy and people please come to our stores because we're so great. Um, <laughs> then you go to the stores, um, pick any, any store that, that you find from any big chain, there's a very high chance that your experience there is uh, tremendously underwhelming. And now these big expensive retail spaces are no longer able to make money at this point right now. And uh, companies that have said, yes, either we sell on Amazon or we learn from them and put it into our own hands to, to make our clients also to shop online. These companies are, are the ones that are able to to survive a situation like this. I don't see companies making it well through this time that have you know ignored di diversifying their their sales channels for years. Yeah, I mean, I'll push back a little bit in the sense that I think there's lots of brands that don't want to be on Amazon because Amazon, in some ways, is fundamentally like anti-brand. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, a lot of people that have a premium brand don't want to be. Uh, you know, one page on Amazon that looks like every other page, you know, with no control over the reviews and with competitive items right next to them. Obviously, from a consumer perspective, a lot of times that's that's good. Um, but you also have a lot of consumers that aren't happy with the fact that there's relatively low amounts of curation on Amazon. So it's overwhelming the number of options you have and half the options in some product categories are crap. So I, I wouldn't say Amazon's like the end all be all. They haven't figured everything out yet. And like, there are definitely retailers that have gotten a good omni-channel. Like I, in the U.S., yeah. you have Best Buy, for example, where when it comes to electronics, yeah, sure. There's in some cases you have one-day shipping from Amazon, but actually, I think a lot of a lot of people still like to go see things in person. Obviously, not these days, but um, curbside pickup is a huge thing. Like, I, I don't think the future is just digital only. And so, in many ways, as I was talking about with this food delivery company that does um, basically e-bikes for couriers. It's not just the food delivery boom. Like, yes, that's going to be driving a lot of their growth in the short run, the company we invested in called Bolt Bikes. But in the long run, um, they're going to be providing vehicle formats for all sorts of uh, you know, retail, leader, retail leaders that want to be doing 
local delivery, same-day delivery. So they have an omni-channel strategy where you have in-person yeah. retail outlets for kind of like high high touch experience, but you can also do like fulfill something within two hours if you buy it online from the local store, et cetera. Like you're going to have a lot of different strategies that play out. And I think it just depends yeah, on the kinds of What I was trying to say is basically, if you know what you want, Amazon is probably the easiest and most convenient way to get it. And I don't want to say that Amazon is the best in what they do, um, but definitely the, the problem that I see that People that don't have an omni-channel strategy, which means um, uh, sales, a uh, way to get their sales out through retail, online, and click and collect and stuff like that, that they declared e-commerce as their enemy and said, we're not going to do that. Our shops are so great. And then you go to their shops and they're uh, the opposite of that. Yeah, I, I think that that was, a, that was yeah. a, an excuse in the old days when people were like, oh, we're just not going to go online. That was just essentially trying to trying to turn, you know, a problem into a strategy, which was yeah. never a strategy to begin with. It was just, let's not, let's ignore it. Right. And I don't think anyone seriously, no one can seriously yeah. push that. that absolutely. And I also think in, in Germany, we religiously love cash, cash payment. And since last year in 2019, for the first time ever, the volume of cashless transactions has first time uh, been more or higher than cash transactions and with you know the whole hygiene aspect i understand everyone that has you know privacy concerns and being too transparent to their governments or has cybersecurity concerns and i want to put that all to the side for, for the moment which is the convenience uh, factor and people right now are forced most of them are forced to to use card payments or things like Apple Pay or purchase, purchasing things online. I really think um, that this will change uh, the way we consume and that will definitely impact the way we buy things uh, on the long run. And I've I've seen some statistics that you know show jumps from the percentage of a company's revenue, how it's spiked since this whole Corona thing started and uh, to in, impact the economy, like how <laughs> cash payments are just breaking down and contactless um, credit card, whatever the system is that you use, uh, is spiking up like like crazy. And, you know, some of it has to do with, with startups providing solutions that you can get your groceries even delivered to the home. I, we have a um, service here in Germany uh, it's from a big grocery retailer. It's uh, called Edeka. Uh, for those people that know Florida, I could uh, say Publix. It's Edeka, but with an E-D, right? E-D-K, E-D-E-K. Yeah, I think yeah I've with seen the yellow, yellow, yellow big blue. Retailer, right? They have a delivery service and I just checked. They are booked out until mid of August. Like I cannot get groceries <laughs> through them if I would like to have it delivered to my home in the mid of August. So week before that, I ordered food and it was already a three-week delivery time, which is, which is you know, I've Delay, never yeah. ordered anything that I needed to wait uh, three weeks for. Well, I mean, that that speaks to like the, the tendency for people to be slow to respond. I mean, brands that have been digital, you know, not digital first brands, so 
legacy brands like take Starbucks or Best Buy, but they at least adopted an aggressive digital strategy years ago, are really well positioned. Think about like the other day I was walking by a Starbucks on a run early, early in the morning before people come out. And um, there's just a, there's a line out the door to pick up their, their order ahead items. And you look at the volume of people that are ordering ahead at that Starbucks location. If Starbucks didn't have its pretty easy to use app with the wallet functionality, like yeah. where would that re, you know where would that be, right? And all the franchisees, I, I assume they still have a bunch of franchisees. It's not all corporate stores, but all the franchisees are benefiting from the fact that yeah, if you were, say you were, I don't know, but I'm going to pick on Dunkin' because I assume Dunkin' is crap, but honestly, I, I don't know. But say you're a Dunkin' Donuts, you might be right with that you, one, <laughs> and you don't have order ahead, right? If you are a Dunkin' Donuts franchisee and you have to pay rent, and you know the reason you're the reason you pay a percentage of your revenue to Dunkin' is because you expect them to be providing you with branding, with with customer you know customer volume, with new products, etc. And you don't have order ahead, but you know your friend that owns the Starbucks franchise is fine because her business actually is backed by a company that's taken a more aggressive digital strategy with the wallet and the order ahead, and the yep. pickup, and everything Which, like. You know, what, who would you rather be? Yeah, by the way, guess what? I think until very recently was the biggest digital payment method in the United States. I, Starbucks. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I remember hearing this funny story. I don't know how the validity of it, but on the, on the surface, it seems like it could be true. A few years after they rolled out the wallet product, in many ways, if you just took a, like a, a, a list of the people with the, the largest like consumer deposits... A lot of them are yeah. banks, obviously, because you have your savings account. But Starbucks was up on that list at some point because, <laughs> like, there were so many people storing thirty, fifty, hundred dollar like balances, yeah. and they're so it's pretty crazy to think about. But yeah, and that that just shows how you know companies that that act early, that have a vision, and you know are aware of that you need to find more than one way to your customer. That's basically the point that I was trying to make earlier. Okay, I, I should I should clarify. Apparently, Dunkin' Donuts does have an app, but it looks like it has some pretty good reviews and there is order ahead. So I want to clear the air. Dunkin', Dunkin is clear on this, but I'm sure there's <laughs> other... <laughs> yeah, Waffle House. Let's pick on Waffle House. Okay. I feel like Waffle House is a safe bet if you're talking about a non-digital brand. Yeah, this, this is just uh, fascinating to see how things have, have changed. And uh, I remember me being the first time in the United States and, you know, seeing how normal it was to pay with card. I mean, uh, when we've lived in Israel, um, we also, you know, uh, I most of the payments I did there was card. But uh, and. But to see how the digital space has taken over uh, our consumer habits, and right now we are more or less forced to um, to adapt to the situation. Before that, it was more like a convenience or a belief question. Do you believe in ordering things online, or uh, you, are you going to do it the old-fashioned way and you go go there yourself and you talk to the people? All of this is changing right now, and it's so interesting when you mention the, you know, these these things and the connection with the automotive industry, because they're now becoming part of that. You can, as of today, you already can talk to your car and tell your car to pay for 
the fuel that you just pumped into it without having to swipe your card or touch uh, or going inside uh, to the little store at the gas station. You saw Shell Shell has this thing. Uh, you can buy fuel ahead or load up stuff on the Shell app. They, they have an integration with a startup called P97 yeah. that lets them do that. But yeah. that's already old news. What I'm talking about is I can tell my Audi, Alexa, pay for my gas. And then magic happens and my fuel is paid without me uh like in, in a scenario if they have someone that f f pumps up your car um not even having to leave the vehicle and i can spend time watching netflix or whatever you know like these things are already there and it's uh, really fascinating how the purchasing process is no longer no longer even happening only on in person or on smartphones or, or over the browser. You know, it's basically voice enabled while you're out driving around and you talk to your car basically and say it, it has to pay something for you. This is, could not have come to a to a better timing than right now because I think it's uh, very reasonable to try to not to be outside too much and touch things that often that you don't know uh, how. How clean they are. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's wild also is the, uh, a lot of states, well, at least a few states in the U.S. have these laws that prevent you from pumping your own gas. So I think Oregon is one where you have to have an attendant come pump the gas. Mm. And uh, it's one of these things that like the law doesn't really make that much sense. It's designed to like, you know, protect some group of people, et cetera. Um, and, you know, suddenly they're like, okay, clearly uh, under these circumstances, we should rethink all of these things because you want minimum person-to-person -person contact and it's kind of falling away but shifting gears a little bit you in the beginning you mentioned your your team and your colleagues in in israel what is going on there at the moment so i, I think israel's been really aggressive in trying to enforce the social isolation stuff um in mid-february when i was there last for a wedding with my girlfriend we were going to india and the, the last day we were there They had canceled or blocked all flights from Korea and Japan, um, which was, they were one of the earlier countries to do that, I think. And they started actually uh, organizing what they, it was kind of, they call them like rescue missions. I don't know how you'd really consider them rescue missions or not, but they, they were flying Israelis back from all over the world to get back to Israel, which is very interesting because as a strategy, you know, you're, intro you're introducing more vectors for the virus to come into the country. And I think a lot of the infections you have Today and the spread you have today in Israel has come from this like focus of bringing people back. But as a, a kind of like ethno national state, they do have a very strong emphasis on like protecting you know the people or protecting the you know their group. And so they they do have this uh, very strong focus on like bringing people back home. But paired up with that, you have a pretty aggressive like you know social isolation and lockdown regime there. So a few weeks ago, no, maybe two weeks ago, they banned you from even walking more than a hundred meters from your, your house, unless you're going to get groceries, I think, uh, which has really, you know, made it miserable for many runners. Uh, and, and look, I, I'm not, I'm not an expert here, but I would assume if you're going out at six in the morning and there's no one out there and you're running yourself, like you're not really posing a danger to yourself or others, but that's, that's apparently out of the question. In fact, one of my colleagues Is, is here with me in California. He's, he's South African, but, but Israeli. He doesn't want to go back in part because one, I, I'm not even sure how many flights you have going back there anymore. And two, um, you know, you get, you get stuck in your house. It does appear to be working. 
I mean, time will tell, but it looks like they've got the situation under control. So yeah, pretty aggressive measures there. But um, yeah. How, how does that impact uh, your your collaboration within the team? Yeah, we're, we're all digital. Every, everyone's working from home. It's, it's Zoom life. You know? <laughs> Hashtag Zoom life. <laughs> but, but in general, like travel restrictions are a problem for us because we, two reasons. One, like, I think any investor has this fundamental question of like, I mentioned before, the average investor founder relationship is longer than the average American marriage, right? Like you're, you're going to be working really closely with someone and, and can you establish enough of a, a connection and a mutual understanding just via video chat? Like we haven't had to come to that conclusion yet ourselves and we're early in this process, but I think there's going to be a lot of funds out there that have to ask that question for themselves. Like, can they make investments having never met the people in person, which is, it's pretty crazy in my view. Um, It's like dating without, you know, it's a, it's what's that show that Netflix has that's going crazy these days where you like don't meet the person and then you agree to marry them and then you meet them later on. Do you know what I'm talking about? I it's, probably it's would have to ask my has. wife about that. <laughs> She watches all these funny, funny things, which I enjoy watching with her confession right here. Um, yeah, but it, it, it is so, so wild to, you know, invest just for me to think like you you will invest in a company that you never ever saw these people in person and you need to make financial decision that could have quite some some impact if if that just you know money burns and goes away i mean that's in the nature of the business i understand that but right now from my own experience you know like even in my business it's so important to meet the person uh, that you want to do business with, look them in the eyes, figure out how you can provide the best solution for them. But an in, in investment is reading a PDF file, talking on Zoom or WebEx a few times, and then you need to make a decision if you pump X amount of dollars in, into that without having this human. Yeah, but it's not, it's not even the money. Like it's, it's, it's the idea that you're going to be working with them on in the early days, like on a weekly basis or like on a monthly basis, right? It's, it's, it's much more than just the money. It's, um, yeah, it's complicated. It's like dating before, you know, dating without having the person, uh, interaction first or something. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> just, I am just thinking about how my personal work work has, has changed since usually I, I drive to my clients and we, we talk, we have a coffee together. We see, you know, where yeah, but you, you drive long distances. No, you, you've got, you've got like a, an RS six and you, you go on I the wish, autobahn to cover the entire <laughs> Yeah, if I had an R6, I probably would not have to record my podcast in my bedroom. But I have an A4, which is a lovely, lovely vehicle, and I'm really grateful. But <laughs> that's the point. Yeah, I just to close that topic real quick. We we work like usually between three to five years at least with our clients, and then after that, we can see how we can improve. Or, in worst case, we lose the client to one of our um, more or less great companies competitors but you know even for us it's it's so such a challenge to get this connection to the person that you want to do business with over digital because what i've learned like even how much people pay attention over digital meetings uh, that you have over video conference or just a phone call it's just such a different level of what you have when you when you do these things in person and i You know, I'm very interested to see how after all of this social distancing isolation is over, how our, our business world will look like, 
you know, how we gonna invest in companies or, you know, start projects uh, without, you know, being able to talk to everyone that's involved in the process. I think that's gonna be a big challenge and uh, hopefully the way we were used to do things has not changed completely forever that's at least uh, my my wish for for what's what's next for us yeah you know i was thinking about it for a moment and and actually reversing back to what we had said earlier is it harder to make or is it worse or better to make investment decisions without spending a lot of time with somebody in person? You know, what you're trying to determine about them is both emotional and it's logical, right? And so in any interaction, there's you know, ethos, pathos, logos, right? Yep. And I think actually in some ways, if you spend a lot of time in person with someone, you may actually risk over-indexing on, on the pathos, right? And so the the, the way somebody communicates and the and the... Um, the techniques they have to convince you about certain things might have you glossing over, you know, some basic kind of logical flows that you might have been a little bit more careful to talk through with them in a more systematic way. If you had been conducting a lot more interactions digitally where a lot of the body language and cues go away or even via yeah. text. So I, I will say that there, there are ways that perhaps ensuring you have an omni-channel relationship could prevent you from kind of over-indexing on one thing, especially when you have like, you know, confident, you know, convincing people that are saying things in a, in a strong way. Like you might, you might just kind of gloss over some things that over text or over video, you, you could really push back on because, because you're looking, look on the emotional side, you're looking for people in any walks, in any type of business. If this is a founding team, this is a team that needs to stick through hard times for years. They need to be extremely flexible to changing environments. They need to be able to sell and recruit people to join them on their efforts. Like there's a lot of emotional aspects of foundership that that are hard to determine without the in-person connection, I think. And that's what you miss. On the flip side, you're also looking for somebody that um, certain things like the ability to learn really quickly uh, the, the ability to be self-aware about like why I believe this, but taking a step back, are there other perspectives that do make sense and what, what circumstances would change to make me reconsider my current position, right? As opposed to just being blindly in one direction. And a lot of those things you can actually maybe be at risk of not testing when you're only doing stuff in person, especially if you're with a really convincing person. So there are pluses and minuses come to think of it actually. Yeah. It's a super interesting perspective because, um, the German mind circles about the things what could be possibly bad. <laughs> uh, that's just how a lot of us function. But, you know, also not being influenced by an overdose of personal charisma that is probably stronger than the company or the product. So, uh, it's, I've, I, I haven't thought of, of that, uh, that aspect that it keeps you more rational and less, you know, emotional involved probably into the the candidates for the next funding and you look at it with a more analytic numbers perspective on it we've talked about retail we've talked about food delivery we've talked about um, automotive what do you think the future will will look like in and when it comes to services companies and our everyday life do you think you know, people will 
<laughs> get tired of, of shopping their things online and will storm retail again, but maybe with something like click and collect? Or do you think we will mainly live in the world of apps and, and services? Yeah, I, I'm a little bit out of my depth here. I mean, even though we do look a lot of like e-commerce adjacent stuff, especially on the fulfillment side for delivery, I don't spend every waking moment thinking about the future of retail. Um, so I'll say I'm channeling more what I hear in the market from talking with like people that spend all their days working, you know, corp dev or strategy at Walmart and, and uh, Jet and, and all these other like, you know, top retailers. I do really believe in the omnichannel um, thing in particular, because as a person, I really enjoy going into certain stores. I feel that, um, and you see this all the time with like direct to consumer brands, right? Warby Parker, Away, things of the sort, um, many of whom are struggling, but that's, that's another, that's another topic. But, uh, yeah. you know, they started online. Um, online gives you a tremendous amount of information on who, who's coming to your property, who's clicking through, what are they interested in? But eventually, especially for these consumer products, you also need an offline, you also need like an offline presence. And, uh, the interplay there, I think is going to be interesting. I think that, uh, the big, the big word that you hear a lot is BOPIS, buy online, pick up in store, BOP. Yeah. Click and collect. Yeah. Click and collect. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's a, that's a big deal. And BOPIS is actually really like getting into how it works. It's, it's pretty complicated. The idea that, because look, when, when you go into a store, you don't, assume that they're going to have everything, right? You understand that retailers have a certain selection. You know, when you go on Amazon, you're assuming you can find anything you want. And so there's a bridge between like, you might be attracting a client who's used to buying something from a really diverse set of options. But then when you get to the BOPIS side of things, like you don't actually have everything in that particular store. The economics of actually having an employee walk through the store and pick up a basket and get the basket ready for curbside pickup, like that's actually also not you know, completely hammered out. Instacart is a great example. Yeah. Like it's, they're really squeezed. They're between consumers that don't want to pay that much for delivery. And the fact that like to make a, a reasonable amount of money, if you want to go pick for Instacart, like you need to make whatever, 12, 13, $15 an hour in San Francisco. And, and it takes a while to walk through a grocery store and pick up stuff. So, so BOPIS does appear like it's a big, you know, one of those big channels in the omnichannel mix, but it's not an easy one to, to fulfill from an economics perspective. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of challenges. I, I do think though that stores aren't going away. Um, it's going to be a lot of online for the, for the everyday, the Amazon dash button is a great example. Like why do I have to go pick up cartridge ink, right. Or pick up like, repetitive purchases when it should just be coming sort of like a, you know, an automated thing. But for, for like aspirational purchases, things I want to really feel touch it, the stores are not going, going to go away for that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I think so too. Um, especially let's, let's, uh, have an example here, a brand that I respect, but I, I, I don't like is, uh, Tesla. <laughs> I respect them for their technological achievements and also how they were able to make, uh, unknown brand an absolute benchmark for electric vehicles and their retail places are not car dealerships you know it's more like an experience center something that you're probably were before that more used to from let's say apple for that for the emotional customer journey from experiencing the products and from the the side of you know like seeing things going there to socialize with friends and i i think that will 
maybe be more the the center of retail in the future. Um, the, Going back to Tesla, what you were, you were saying yeah. about their, their kind of dealership experience, there's also a huge interesting saga there because car dealerships in general are a very protected kind of uh, class of retailer. Um, yeah. Car sales in general are weird. Like, you know, let's take a brand everyone probably knows today, Warby Parker. They make their own products. They market their products. Um, you can buy their products on their website, or you can go to the, one of their stores, which is their store. It's all a vertically integrated brand. Car companies are so different. It's like Toyota, for example. Toyota is a company that makes cars and ships cars. They don't. They they sell them either to dealerships who are a completely yep. different business, um, or they sell them to you know if you lease a Toyota, for example you're actually leasing it from what's called a captive finance organization. So Toyota actually sells huge numbers of cars to Toyota Financial, which is a leasing bank. Or if you know you're subprime, yeah. you might go to Ally or all these other banks that offer like you know car leasing facilities. Um, and the relationship that Toyota has with its end customer is very, there, there's, it's very distant. Like, you know Toyota because Toyota runs branding and has commercials and whatnot. But on the flip yeah. side, Tesla in its in its retail locations, like it's a vertically integrated company. The people that are working retail at Tesla, that are getting product feedback, um, you know, work for Tesla. If Tesla has a new, you know, feature that comes out, which they do because it's a very digitally enabled vehicle, they can actually communicate that by training their employees at their stores how to talk about that feature with consumers. Whereas today, if you're Toyota and you want to like make sure that consumers walking into a dealership understand what you know Toyota Autopilot or whatever does, you know, you don't you don't actually even those are not your employees. Those are like employees of yeah. 50 or 60 different major companies, all of whom have their own interests, their own priorities. Yeah. And so like it, it's such a broken chain between um, and I'm not saying the future is no dealerships. Like I think dealerships from a regulatory perspective are, are really, really well positioned to continue. The question is, how do you actually improve what dealerships are doing to, to bridge the gap between the Tesla or the Apple experience and the kind of like, we're a brand that has no idea who buys our cars and we just throw them at retailers and the retailers may or may not actually do a good job of explaining it and, and selling this product. Like, that's, that's a whole other kind of weird situation that's uh, in that vertical of, of consumer purchases. Yeah, I think the time will tell what's the right strategy and what the consumer and what we as individuals uh, are willing to adopt and uh, to go with or to stick with. Um, you, I know that uh, when you don't travel to three continents per week, uh, you know, something's wrong. <laughs> like uh, you travel so much that uh, when you were uh, in in India and you didn't post for for three days, I was like, oh, oh what happened to Prescott? He hasn't updated uh, his, his status since 72 hours. <laughs> do I need to be concerned? How do you deal with... I don't know how uh, I feel about being known as the guy that posts every, every 72 <laughs> hours. <but>. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's 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 great. No, but how do you deal with you know this whole situation of being able to do the job the way you um you have been doing for years, and how do you handle this situation? Yeah, honestly, we don't have a real. Is working still fun? <laughs> yeah, we're, no, working is fun. I mean, look, I, I it, we're we're really lucky to be doing what we're doing because day to day, basically, our job is meeting 
really interesting people, all of whom are very motivated to solve some problem that are bringing a new solution. Like it's, it's very interesting work, but it's, it's definitely hard because we don't have a, we don't have like a geographic mandate. So we're not only investing in Silicon Valley or only investing in Israel. So in 2019, which was a pretty crazy year, we spent like a month in India, uh, went back again or in February, spent a month in Latin America and, you know, now that we actually kind of laid the groundwork to get involved and get active in those ecosystems, we're starting to see lots of founders that are coming to us or we're, we're getting referrals from other funds that understand, you know, we have a vertical expertise in mobility. Let's, let's involve these folks because Maniv is like an expert group in this particular area. Um, and it's tough because, you know, if this situation wasn't, wasn't happening, we just fly back. Oh, we're talking to groups in Colombia and Mexico right now. We just fly back over and sit down, spend a week with them, walking through, seeing how the product works. Like, and, uh, it's, it's tough to do that. I mean, I don't really have an answer. Uh, I think that time will tell for, for us and for many other investors, how, how investing is going to work when you can't actually go and, and spend time in person with folks. But do you appreciate being home for longer times than you usually are? Um, for a while I started getting used to living out of a suitcase where like I got home to a closet full of clothes. I'm like, what do I need all these clothes for? Right. <laughs> you know what I need the closet, closet for? <laughs> so what'd you, what'd you say? What do I need the closet for? Yeah. What do I need the closet for? Um, cooking's actually a lot of fun. I think that actually when you're just on the road and eating, like frequently not eating that well, and you don't have a good workout schedule, uh, you know, you kind of forget about stuff. And when you're in your twenties or, you know, almost in your thirties, like, uh, me and my colleagues are, that it's, um, can be bad, but I think, I think being home has some other benefits there. Also, you know, being close to people you care about, but yeah, I don't think I have any work from home tips that other people can't figure it out. Honestly, I'm figuring it out myself right now. Prescott, thank you so much for spending this hour talking with me about all of these very different, but still connected topics and um it's definitely also super interesting to see how you know this world of startup investing works to get a like a little peek into into that universe what is the one thing that you look forward to the most after we all can live a normal life again what do you miss the most right now honestly from a work perspective i miss seeing my team in israel uh, i used to go back once every few weeks it was a direct flight um so it'll be good to actually spend some face time with them uh and personally i'm starting to really miss going on saturday mornings to a cafe and just sitting in the sunlight surrounded by people having conversations people reading books and just enjoying a coffee out there i'm trying to replicate that experience as much as i can with my girlfriend in the living room but you know <laughs> still uh still not the same experience thank you so much for being here once again and i hope we can do this again at some time i think doing a podcast is a really really great way to uh be able to talk yeah. <laughs> uh, with each other because we both are so packed with projects uh, work and whatnot so i really enjoyed this quite a lot and i hope to talk to you soon and um what's your social social channel uh that should be followed Oh, I, hit me on Twitter. My, my DMs are open, at least for now. And uh, while well, I'm still unpopular on Twitter, and uh, I'm sure you can put stuff in the show notes, but it's Prescott Watson, uh, P-R-E-S-C-O-T-T-W-A-T-S-O-N. Um, yeah, maybe I'll see you in Berlin. Awesome. Looking so, so forward to that. Thank you very much. Take care.